When you were the first man in to, to, to go into a, a, a Taliban camp, yep. for example, mm -hmm. how did you prepare for that? Everything is, is it's a numbers game, you know. When I was stacking up against the door, my initial thought was, when I go through that door, I know there's someone stood on the other side with a weapon. When I go through that door, what are the chances of that person, that untrained person, getting one or two bullets off on his weapon? Okay, the chances are quite high. What are the chances of one of, the, one of those bullets hitting me in the head and killing me outright? That's very slim. You know, it might hit me in my body armor, it might hit me in the, in the leg. So what are the chances of me actually dying? It's slim because I'm the aggressor, I'm the trained soldier. By the time I get in and finish the job, or my power's on my back, he will come in and finish the job. So the likelihood of that, them getting a kill shot is very, very slim. So this the odds are with me. This is an assessment you make before you, you, you move in. Repetition, repetition. I, I made these assessments after kicking 10, 15 doors down. It's just it, You just learn to, to use this emotion. You learn to sort of do these calculations in your head very, very quickly. But what, what about fear? Doesn't that disturb in a way? Fear is always there. Um, fear is, you know, people who say they can conquer fear are, are, are lies. You can't conquer fear. But what you can do, you can harness fear. And it's, it, you make it work for you. Fear doesn't get, fear is an emotion that we all have. You know, I could talk to everyone in the crowd here and they would explain fear to me. We'll all have the same um, explanation of fear. But it's how we layer it. You know, we have a horrible tendency to complicate everything that happens, right? Fear, acknowledge the fear for what it is, but then we layer it, we go, right, am I going to die? Am I going to come out of this alive? Am I going to see my family again? That's putting negatives on negatives. The moment, so you strip the emotion, you strip the situation down to, to what it is. You don't complicate things. And when you can do that, that life almost becomes black and white. It's not, but it almost becomes so, so, so simple. And that's how I think. I just think in the simplest terms and um, I don't complicate things. But, no. but do you think about the fact that you've killed a lot of people that are someone's father? No. You are the father of five yourself? No. Um, no, not at all. Um, like I said, um, there's, there's good and there's evil in this world. Um, I'm, a, I'm a good man, I, um, I know that. Um, and if you surpass, like I said, if you surpass a certain threshold of evil, then you do, do not deserve to be walking this planet. And that's how, I, that's how I saw it. I never saw it as, again, it was never personal. I never saw it as this is someone's, you know, you listen, it's, it's one of those, if you, if you live by the sword, then you must expect to die by the sword. You know, it's just, again, taking extreme ownership of yourself, you know, holding yourself accountable, listen. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest on with me today, James Glancy. Uh, James served in the British military uh, for a number of years, and he does some pretty cool uh, work these days. Um, James, how's it going? Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for coming on. So we'll, we'll kind of walk through... 
career a little bit, and then we can also talk about what it is that you're you're up to these days. Can we start with how long you were in the military? Yeah, so my full-time service was 10 years. But if you add together the time I did before um, I went regular and then after in the reserves, probably stretches to about 14. But the story began probably uh, at school I joined the cadets. And I was a pretty hyperactive kid, and it was the cadets that got me focused, focused for school, focused for sport, um, got me the grades to get through, um, get through college. And I and being in the cadets, being outdoors, the discipline of the military, that's what inspired me to jo- uh, apply to join the Royal Marine Commandos. And I got a scholarship um, age 17 years old. Uh, to go to university, um, sponsored by, by the Royal Marines. That was like 1999. And, um, and so that, that's what set me up, really. That set me up to go to university. But my full-time career in the Royal Marines began in 2004, which um, was an interesting time because it's, it, um, I was at university um, as a second lieutenant in the Marines uh, when 9-11 happened. Do you remember and exactly where you were that day? I remember everything in slow motion. We had just been down at Commando Training Center on the southwest coast of the United Kingdom. We were in the early stages of training, and um, we had been got up early, thrashed around the river estuary in the mud, probably got back and washed ourselves off, and then got into parade uniform, and someone said, oh, there's been some sort of incident in New York, maybe a terrorist attack. No one knew what was happening, but we all piled into the television room. And there it was. And you can imagine, remember the TVs back then, weren't these flat screen LCDs, the sort of those tubular big old things were sort right. of piled into this room. And some of the more senior guys, so um, I was young, I was 19, but some of the more senior guys um, who were doing officer training. They'd already been enlisted for years, um, corporal sergeants who were coming to do um, officer training. They said, you know, we're going to war. Then, so I, did, I, I actually did, so I did the first six, uh, four weeks of training, um, and then I went to university. And when I finished in 2004, um, Iraq had happened, and Afghanistan was just kicking off again. So when you, you mentioned the cadets before, it, would that be similar to like the Boy Scouts in America? No, I did. I did Scouts. Um, oh, I, OK. So that's different. I see. That's yeah, no, no. So, so I would say cadets in the UK is like militarized Scouts. So we, we it's like army training. So you have an Air Force section that does flying. You have army cadets. And you go I and, see. You go in the field. You shoot guns. You make camps. You do. You, I mean, you learn section attacks, troop right. attacks. You know, you know, you, you learn tactics and survival, but it's it's really young. It's it, 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 it's leadership and teamwork training in a military environment for young uh, young girls and boys. And is that like what, like teenager age range, or? I think they take cadets from about 14, 13, 14, 14 to eighteen. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's great. I mean, you, we don't, 
as you know, in the USA, we don't have the same types of gun laws. People don't have gun ownership. So, you know, if you are interested in using weapons and you want to learn, uh, the cadets is the way you do that. And it's the way, and that's what gives you those early skills. So it sorted me right out going from Cub Scouts into um, cadets. And then, you know, it was a, just a natural progression to go to, go to university as a, as a Royal Marine sponsored officer. And then boom, 2004. I'm afraid it was game on for everyone in the British and United States military because we ended up with two conflicts on the go. Early on, uh, after September 11th, I think it was the next month and a half or two months or so, um, the CIA had sent people into Afghanistan and then other special operations units uh, from over here were there trying to capture bin Laden in the um, Tora Bora mountain range. And that was actually the first time I had read about the British Special Boat Service because we had in, uh, Delta Force commandos were there along with some guys from Special Forces, Green Berets. And they had, there was a book uh, written by a former uh, Delta commander about that situation. And in his book, he had mentioned how they had teamed up with the British SBS. And that was the very first time I've ever even heard of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, I'm not going to confirm or deny it, but rumor has it they were there in the early days. And, you know, if they were there, I'm sure they did a good job. And, uh, What's interesting about that era of that phase of the war is sort of the Rumsfeld campaign, that it was about working with foreign national forces and militias like the Northern Alliance, getting rid of the Taliban. It was absolutely not about nation building. A very quick operation, you know, initially very, very successful. It's interesting to see that working with foreign militias was the tactic that we come back to in Syria and in Iraq, um, went fighting against the Islamic State. But in between that, we sort of got into this nation-building counterinsurgency work, which, you know, if you to judge now, hasn't been hugely successful. Right. So we've kind of come full circle. But those early, those early years, now some really there's some really quality work coming out in terms of pot the, the the strategy, the politics what's going on in Pakistan, ISI, through to actually tactical, what was going on in the mountains, what was going on with the calling in the air from the B-52s. It's all coming to light now, and it's fascinating. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, so this is something I've always kind of been curious about. You know, you hear the name Royal, Mar uh, Royal Marine Commandos. Um, in the U.S., the term commando is usually attached to someone who belongs to some Special Operations Unit. Um, are the Royal Marine Commandos considered special operations in the UK, or is it more of like a light infantry? So the Royal Marines are elite forces. Um, the Royal Marines Commando course is the longest basic infantry course in the world, but the, the Royal Marines are an amphibious force. So they have extra training for mountaineering, for boat work, for operating uh, in extreme climates, such as the Arctic. So the, the physical nature of the commando course, 
And when we talk about the commando, of course, the original, the original commando comes from the South African word commando. They were commando units with a K in the Boer War at the turn of the 20th century, so around 1900. Very effective small teams. Uh, the British commandos comes from the Second World War. Right, uh, and and it's synonymous with the Fairburn site commando dagger, and you, that, that the fame. In fact, I've got one just in the room here with me, but um, that commando dagger was the commandos were famous for parachuting or being dropped off by boat over the beach or um, kayaking, ca- canoeing into uh, behind enemy lines and op- and doing small missions, special operations missions. And the Royal Marines still does specialist work, but it also does the generalist infantry work. So we, you'd have seen the Royal Marines take a profile in Afghanistan very similar to uh, the U.S. Marines or other um, infantry units. But the Royal Marines has specialist roles. So, for example, they look after the nuclear nuclear capability in Britain. They do a small board, uh, small team boarding party work, um, counter piracy work. Uh, counter um, terrorist work, work at sea, and right now, as we speak, they are working um, for the force protection and counter Iranian operations of the Bab, uh, the, the Bab, um, the, um, off the straits between Iran and Oman. Where we we've seen we've got incidents there. Right. They they do they. They, they span the role of specialist work, but not tier one special forces work. But it's critical to know that you you can join the Royal Marines straight off the street as a civilian, very much like the Navy SEALs. And the physical tests are incredibly demanding. They're, they're probably up there with the most demanding infantry um, physical training course you can do in the world, which is what earns you your Green Beret and you get that extra specialist training, which is why they're considered an elite force, but they don't carry out um, tier one operations. Right. So like high value targets and that, that kind of thing is that's more for the um, SBS, SAS and stuff like that. SAS, and SBS, that's right. So high value targets and hostage rescue. Um, but, you know, the, the Royal Marines have um, extensive capability in reconnaissance and surveillance, um, setting up beachheads. And uh, you know they are our they're the 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 lead um, they're the lead asset in the northern flank of NATO, so protecting that northern northern flank during the Russian during the Cold War, and we've now gone back there. The Royal Marines are back up there training hard, training with our Scandinavian counterparts in those um, cold temperatures because obviously um, Russia has has rearmed and is more aggressive in posture now. So the Marines are deployed right now all around the world, some working in small teams, you know, four-man teams, others working at a commando strength, which is like your regular infantry battalion. But it's a core. Um, You have every speciality from drivers to demolition to mortars to heavy weapons to Arctic warfare to drill instructors. Everything is contained. The Royal Marines Corps has everything it needs to sustain itself on operations. So then it was, we said 2004, right, where you, were, where you were done with school and you were full-time into the Royal Marines? That's right, yeah. And my first operational tour was in 2006. We deployed straight to Kabul, and 
that was the time things started kicking off. We That operation for Britain was called Op Herrick 4. Uh, and Op Enduring Freedom would have just been getting going properly at that point. And Britain sent uh, parachute regiment, fusiliers, Gurkhas down into Helmand with the view of trying to peacefully um, get a grip of poppy harvests and dislodge remaining Taliban. But as we know, that went into, that kicked off into intense combat. Right. So that was my first tour. First, that was first, you know, five, five, that was just a short tour, five months. We came back from that had five weeks R and R, and then my my um, co- my company Charlie Company from Forty Commando, we flew out to Gibraltar, and Gibraltar is on the the southern tip of Spain. It's a British dependency, um, so it, it it's part of the United Kingdom. Very small piece of territory. Um, so Royal Marines actually won the rock off the Spanish in eighteen oh five, and they're they're still really pissed off about that so there's a lot of political annoyances but we met up with uh, the royal navy in gibraltar and tradition has it we ran up the rock of gibraltar in the morning after a big night out on the booze then the following morning hms ocean and a flotilla to, departed down to west africa uh, to sierra leone where we were doing jungle training and a show of force during the sierra leone elections to make sure that they happened without the return of the west side boys which um I think everyone will remember from the movie Blood Diamond. Right. And so the the West Side Boys, were those also the guys, I think there, I think it was, I want to say 2000, um, there was an operation in Africa. I, I think it was in Sierra Leone, and I think it was the West Side Boys, um, where some UN personnel were attacked. I don't remember if they were British uh, uh, citizens who were, who were under the command of the UN at the time. Uh, and then the SAS went in for a hostage rescue. Yeah, that was British troops, actually. And they, those guys, they were captured. They had a hard time. And that operation, if you read the books and you speak to people, it's interesting because SBS were there as well. They did the reconnaissance and they were on the river. They went in first up the river and they, were, they got the um, confirmation of the target and then it was a helicopter assault force um, with the SAS. There may be an SPS troop on it. So, yeah, maybe a few guys on it. I don't know the full details. But uh, they went and did successful hostage rescue and um, took out all the West Side boys. That's, you know, that's one of those old school, famous jungle hostage rescues, which is now notorious and uh, legendary. Right. So then, the you know, by the time that you were there... Uh, Things had calmed down a little bit, or were they still pretty? Um... No, yeah, things had calmed down, but they hadn't. Those people hadn't gone. They, like in any insurgency, once they've been hit hard, they they were off in the in the jungles in remote towns, and it's one of those things. It's like with Iraq or Afghanistan. If we went in and left, the th- the place just returns returns to normal. So we had gone in, got rid of them, done some training, put a bit of money into the country. But we had largely pulled out. We left a sort of training mission there. But if we we needed to send a, the Marines and the Navy down there for the elections, because that's the time when they would be confident enough to give it another go to take over the country. So we we just did this entire 
Commando Plus uh, and Amphibious operation deploying from the UK via Gibraltar, where we went over the beach at night. Big show of force, um, big exercise. Where you know, as you do a fake enemy, lots of noise, planes, helicopters, just showing them like, don't mess about, guys. We're back. Um, and there's going to be elections and they're going to be fair and free and don't think you're going to be chopping anyone's arms off like you did last time because the Marines are back in town. So we did that and it worked and there were free and fair elections. And then that, and that was just for me, great opportunity and all the guys from Charlie company and 40 commando to get experience in the jungle, you know, away from home again, uh, somewhere that you wouldn't ordinarily, ordinarily get to in primary jungle. So we spent a month, month training in the jungle. So, you know, Year one, that well, that first sort of proper year um, deployed was Afghanistan, followed by Sierra Leone. So brilliant for me as a young second lieutenant, a troop commander, to um, learn my trade. Okay, so then after you you returned back to the UK, um, were, did you continue as a commander in the Royal Marines, or did you then move on? No, no, I I spent six years in total in the Marines, so I. I then went up to the Fleet Protection Group Royal Marines in Scotland, in Faslane, which is where, where our submarines are, some of our submarines are, and um, beautiful part of Scotland where all the locks are. And um, I did some duties up there, and then I actually ended up deploying to Belize, uh, where we have another um, some British training camps Um which was sort of colonial legacy. And we went out to Belize to do some more jungle training. So I got another month in the trees. But at that point, I realized I was missing the tempo of operations. So I volunteered um, to join the Royal Marines Armored Support Company, which we had these vehicles, called, we have these vehicles called Vikings, which are amphibious. They're designed for over the beach, rapid, um, first in strike, op well, amphibious operations, they're designed to be the, um, you know, the Marines are there as the first troops into into the uh, into the, the theater of war. They're not designed for counterinsurgency, but they have been deployed there. And I heard they were have they were really getting amongst the thick of it with uh, the combat in Helmand. So I volunteered to do the Viking course, and um, I short toured at in Scotland, came back from Belize and went straight back to Afghanistan for eight months as a troop commander down in Helmand. And that's where the real real combat came in between 2007 and eight, because every time you go out on the grounds, you get into some sort of minor tick, troops in contact, you know, some sort of firefight. And for the first four months, that was fine because these vehicles are They've got armored, some armored protection. You've got a big general purpose machine gun, which is 7.62 millimeters. Very similar to the or you've got 50 cows on there. And, you know, we, we could more than hold our own, win all our battles. And, you know, it was a really good place to learn. What changed after four months was um, they started to learn a lot of their ID techniques from the Iranians and also from Iraq. Right. They, worked, they worked out how to make proper shape charges and how to lay you know, an intense IED or minefield. And from January 2008 to February, every week, my troop, my guys, we had a mine strike. 
Wow. So that's why that's the first experience of losing men of you know things going bad under my command when suddenly not only are we losing vehicles and men but then you're stuck and you're in a proper ambush and then you're fighting for your life rather than being the battlefield bully and going out then suddenly realize okay uh, it's all fun and games until someone gets hurt right and um you had mentioned the Gurkhas earlier have you ever worked with them yeah i mean the you know, one of the great things about Afghanistan is that you work with all elements of the British Armed Forces, Army, RAF, you know, occasionally some people in the Navy, obviously the Royal Marines, British Royal Marines part of the Navy. But we worked with the other ISAF nations, the International Security Assistance Force. There was 36 nations. So we got experience. Yeah, I, I was working alongside Gurkha engineers, brilliant guys. Um, but, you know, I worked alongside U.S. Marines. I worked alongside Navy SEALs. Um, mountain divisions and, and and nations like you probably wouldn't even know the capital nation of you know in eastern europe you found we found some amazing special forces units and scandinavian units that we got on well with you know occasionally share a drink with um and and we fought alongside so yeah it was a tough but an unbelievable time right and are you familiar with some of the history of the Gurkhas? Like just like a, maybe we can do like a brief walk over of that. Am I familiar with the, the history of the Gurkhas? Um, in some aspects, I am, but I I can give you sort of maybe for your audience an overview. Yeah, and maybe that will lead on to a uh, you you should potentially interview my friend Nims, who's doing um, Nims Die, who was in the SBS Gurkha first Gurkha to get into Tier One Special Forces in the UK, and he's wow. doing he's doing a challenge right now all the world's 8,000 meter peaks in seven months and the previous record seven years. Oh, so he's, yes, I, I'm familiar with him. I, I don't know. I'm, I don't know him or anything, but I, I, I think I've seen something about that on online yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Well, I serve with Nims and he's, uh, he's, he's nailing that. So the Gurkhas, um, they come from Nepal. Right. And, um, Britain, uh, as it did during the empire found itself campaigning on operations in Nepal, fighting the locals there. I mean, why you'd be in the foothills or in the Himalayas fighting near Everest, don't ask me, but we found yeah. us, you know, <laughs> Brits found themselves from South Africa, you know, over to um, Afghanistan, obviously America, you name it, there was a fight going on. But they, the Brits fought the Gurkhas um, and there was a huge amount of respect for the way the um, Nepalese fought. And... I believe the history says it correctly that an agreement came that they would um, serve under um, the Queen, or the King at the time would have been the Queen, and serve as part of the British Empire, and form the first Gurkha units. And the Gurkha units served with distinction in the Second World War, particularly in the jungles out in Burma, out in, the, in that campaign, with the 8th Army Field Marshals, Slim's 8th Army. Uh, and they they gain they've gained this fearsome reputation as a very hardy, competent, aggressive soldier who uses the cookery knife, this big right. curved shaped knife. And there it, it is said that if they draw the knife in battle, they have to draw blood. So if they haven't killed an enemy or ha hacked up an enemy with it, they um they cut themselves before they resheath the knife. Wow. And they've got a fearsome reputation. The Japanese were terrified of them. 
So, yeah, so, you know, the Gurkhas have a great reputation and it's a privilege to you know, work alongside them operationally in Afghanistan. But also, you know, the Marines is well regarded and one of our um, one of our competitors is the Parachute Regiment in Britain. And working alongside with them on is also a fantastic experience. And I, I found with the British military, this, our machine works very well when you get these these units that are com competitive with each other, when we work together, right. uh, it's pretty awesome. I want to take a minute to talk to you about our sponsor for this week's podcast, War Dragons. War Dragons is a real-time strategy video game, and you can play it right on your phone. With over 150 different dragons to breed, each has different attack styles and abilities. The month of July is the month of our independence. Um, War Dragons is partnering with StackUp, an organization dedicated to bringing military personnel, military veterans, and civilians together through a shared love of video gaming. War Dragons will match all donations made through the link in-game between July 4th through July 31st, up to a maximum of $10,000. Donors will also get an in-game portrait. If you can't donate but you want to support StackUp's work, Breeding Your Dragons in-game can also help contribute an additional $10,000 donation by War Dragons. Download War Dragons. Visit podcast.wardragons.com slash recon on your phone or tablet for more details on how to participate. That's podcast.wardragons.com slash recon. Right. Yeah. I, and I think it's interesting because over here on the state side of things, um, during the Iranian embassy siege, uh, Delta Force had planned this operation to rescue uh, hostages at the American embassy. And it failed for several reasons, but one of the reasons were is there wasn't a good working relationship between the different branches uh, of the of the military. So through that failure, the idea of a joint uh, special operations command was floated, and then that became a reality. And then the different units, like special operations units from the different branches would, would cross train and work together and um, it, it's produced incredible yeah, absolutely. results. Absolutely. So that, man. you're talking about Operation Eagle Claw. Yeah, Eagle Claw. You're talking yeah. about Operation Eagle Claw. Yeah. So we have our own Iranian embassy siege in 1981, as you know, which has happened in London. Right. And, that, and you know, the SAS, they're already famous, but they that's what threw them to global notoriety when Margaret Thatcher released the British SAS to take down the Iranian embassy in the United Kingdom uh, because they were killing hostages. So the SAS went in and, and wasted all but one of those terrorists. And uh, yeah, I mean, that that's became famous. And what interestingly about that, my, my father, he's a cameraman and he, um, he was in Afghanistan in the eighties living with the Mujahideen um, whilst they were fighting the Russians. But he, in previous to that, he had, he filmed the Iranian embassy siege in the UK and oh, wow. um, Secretly, and that's the famous footage that still goes around. Oh um, no way! Yeah, so he he filmed that, and the SAS were initially really annoyed about it, but um, in hindsight, obviously, they are very pleased to have those memories recorded forever. Right? Yeah, I mean, they they didn't there wasn't much discussion about it until the last couple of years, like as far as the people who were involved on the SAS side. Um, but I think obviously people knew about the SAS, but that was the first like, you know, live action kind of view of, of what um, special operations is and hostage rescue is. Yeah. And uh, it shocked the world. Right? 
Exactly. I mean, essentially operations like that, you know, like the, um, I, I, what's, what was the name of the operation to get Bin Laden called? I can't remember its name, but. Um, Neptune Spear. Neptune Spear. When you've got something so visual on a high value target where the world's press are there, then success and failure um, become a huge story. And, and the special operations are a mixture of cataclysmic mm-hmm. failures and heroic successes, snatching um, success out of the jaws of defeat, or vice versa. And that you know, you see that in the history of the Royal Marines, and then you see that in the history of the SAS and the SBS, and of course, the same with the, the US Special Operations Forces. Right. So, kind of talking on the history uh, of of the British Special Forces, um, there was a I think it was on Netflix. There was a series. I I probably saw it within the last year. I'm not sure exactly when it was produced, and it kind of talked about the um, the history of the SAS in North Africa during World War II and kind of how they came about and and that kind of thing. And it was very you know daring. Um, very out of the box um, kind of thing, and it was very successful. So, some p- people are familiar with some of the history of the SAS. Can we talk about some of the history of the SBS? Yeah, absolutely. So, what, what's really what I find interesting about modern special forces, as opposed to the, their roots, uh, both units, the SAS and the SBS, is that everything right now is very clinical. We it, we use technological superiority, physical robustness, but you know we, we draw on a lot of intelligence and supporting assets in order to achieve uh, effect, in order to uh, be successful on an operation. But the foundations of the SBS and SAS are much more rudimentary in that it, it was the, the daring attitude intelligence and just the guts of a group of people who looked at conventional military operations and said you know why are we why are we working like this we're taking a lot of casualties it's so obvious how we're working to the enemies and we're not exploiting their vulnerabilities why are we not thinking asymmetrically why are we not playing dirty why are we not surprising them in their beds at night when they're not expecting it and they they um got together bits and pieces of equipment they made a plan and they they got a bit of backing from some senior commanders senior officers and said look we want to try things differently we don't want to telegraph our position and go you know left flanking or straight up the middle we want to take these guys out in small teams parachuted behind enemy lines and cause chaos so with the sbs it's you know it's very much like that if you think of the second world war the coastline um, that the Nazis occupied, occupied was massive. You've got the southern flank in the Mediterranean. Then you've got all along the channel, along France, all the way up to Norway. Um, and what the SBS was for, its most famous operation, uh, were the Cockershell heroes. Um, the, and that, that operation um, was, was bait targeting Nazi ships um, up the Gironde in Bordeaux. And uh, which runs a river, and the idea was to block off the river by sinking a load of their vessels um, where they sat in port. But you couldn't 
drop in there and you obviously didn't have targeted airstrikes back then. So the plan was they selected uh, a hard group of Marines and army commandos. They did a specialist selection running around um, on trying to gauge their intelligence to operate on their own. So could they, they did basic escape and evasion. Then they did basic boat work, advanced weapon work. And the, the, the group that got selected were dropped off by submarine. Um, the, I think it was the HMS Tuna submarine. Dropped them off, off the coast in these old school canvas canoes, uh, two-man canoes. And they, were, and they kayaked into uh, the river system, into the Gironde. Some of them didn't even make it. The sea was so rough. I think two or three capsized. Guys were killed before they even got in to the main slog. They then um, paddled up the river at, by, by daytime, sleeping in the reeds, like camouflaged out, sleeping in their boats. And when they got there, um, some of them had some diving gear and they slipped underwater with, with limpet mines, put them on, stuck them to the vessels on timers, and then they bugged out. And they successfully blew up a lot of these ships. And those, as they went on their escape of evasion across France, many of them were caught and executed under the Hitler's commando order, which was any special operations forces, any commandos caught behind uh, Nazi lines were to be immediately executed or firstly tortured by the Gestapo and then executed. So most of those guys didn't escape. Some did. But that's one of our most famous raids was... Um, the Cockershell Heroes Raid, uh, and that uh, that sort of set the standard for doing something completely crazy. And you know, of course, it may not have had a huge strategic effect, but the morale on the British public back home to think, you know, our boys are risking it. They they are causing chaos. They really annoyed Hitler when he heard about this operation. Uh, that's that was a sort of modern day foundation of. British maritime amphib amphibious special forces. Right, and then I think even after, for, for years, they had, they, there were some issues with funding and things like that, and it kind of took a while for the SBS to be considered like a you know top-tier unit and get that kind of funding and support as well. Well, I mean, the SAS was disbanded after the war. And, oh, uh, so the know, SBS was they stayed together, or were they disbanded as well? Yeah, they they had small oper small operations teams kept going, but they, okay. they what after the war the 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 mil conventional military commanders, you know, they looked down their noses at special operations. They sort of thought it was ungentlemanly, and they did everything they could to disband special operations using it. Like and the SOE for this, the special operations executive responsible for the heroes of Telemark raid on Hitler's heavy water in Norway, they were disbanded, which I think is tragic. We should, re we should um, recreate them. But um, a lot of those units were disbanded. Right. Um, the SAS and SBS survived, and they have served all around the world on many, um, in many conflicts that we've, we've all heard of. But I guess um, it wasn't until the... Falklands that they kind of emerged in popular military history again when the SBS and the SAS were the first to deploy into um, the Falkland Islands when we fought against Argentina. 
And then, of course, the SS and SBS were deployed extensively into Iraq in 1991. But uh, we, you know, we don't really have this categorization of tier one, tier two, um, in the same way as the US, uh, US does, because our our special forces units are generalist special forces. So they conduct surveillance and reconnaissance. They conduct offensive action, so strike, HVT um, operations, and of course, hostage rescue. And, and they'll train foreign forces very much like the Green Berets. So they do span a number of areas that American special forces span. But the, con- but the concept is to be globally deployable anywhere in the world, able to withstand any any environment, um, ready to um, respond to the government's requirements um, silently and in a deniable fashion. So can we talk about your your journey into British Special Forces? We can, yeah. And, you know, of course, I, I will have to publicly caveat that. I can't talk about operations or people, personnel, um, as, as you well know. But um, I, I, read the, I read those books back in the 90s about the SAS and SBS during um, the Gulf War One. So Bravo 2-0 is a very famous book here by a guy called Andy McNabb. Right. Um, SAS operation that went wrong behind enemy lines in Iraq when they were fighting Saddam Hussein. And then I read an SBS book, and um, it was about a similar sort of time to I learned to dive, did my paddy course in Florida, which is where my affinity with wildlife and sharks came in, and we'll come back to Shark Week later on. But um, I, I, I did this dive course, and there's a U.S. Navy SEAL um, training us as a, as a young kid, and he's obviously been in the Navy SEALs now. He's a paddy instructor. So again, this fascination about naval diving and special operations and read all the, bought all the books, read them all. And I set my heart on uh, becoming a special operator at 13, 14, 15 years old. So the Royal Marines for me was something I wanted to do, but my path was always to go towards the SBS. So after my second tour of Afghanistan, um, I did a few other postings within the Marines and I applied for selection for the special forces. And selection between the SAS and SBS is joint. It's the same selection. And I was successful for the first time round. And that saw me go into the system, which, like the US, they train you in absolutely everything. You get no spare time because you're either training, preparing for operations, or on operations. And that's the cycle. It's brutal. And, of course, you know, the time I was in was during the Arab Spring, Afghanistan, uh, was in te- uh, you know really intense by that point. So I was all around the world on, on operations doing you know a variety of generalist tasks either in small very small teams or doing the door kicking high value target work which you'd come to expect. But yeah, I mean an absolutely fascinating time. And you know and, I, and I'll be honest, I, d- I didn't do a full long term career um, and, and I wish I'd done more in hindsight. But uh, Though the years I served, you know, they were, they, they've been Britain's war years. Between 2003 and 2012, 14, we were on tour constantly. Things have changed a lot now. Um, unless you're in special operations world, the regular forces is not as much going on. But the 10 years I had the Royal Marines and Special Boat Service, 
were, were, you know, probably the most enjoyable years of my life, but crazy busy and just all focused on operations. So you've received the Conspicuous Gallantry Cross um, in the UK. That is the second highest yes, uh, award. Yes, I did. Ballot, I was, if I'm not and mistaken. it's funny, I, I, I almost crashed my car when my commanding officer rang me up and said he wanted to speak to me because I was like, I thought, I thought, here we go, I'm going to get sacked. <laughs> um, and when he told me, I then rang my dad and he almost walked in front of a bus. Um, it, was, <laughs> it was crazy. I did receive that and, you know, it is absolutely humbling but i i'd be interested to know the take from a lot of american soldiers that have been given these awards because every operation i've been on the risk that we took was equal you know especially in asymmetric warfare where the next step you take could be on a mine or an id you know these guys are shooting out of windows you can never see them they're like ghosts so the risk is there for everybody and as a commander you know your guys are taking usually greater risk. So it, I always feel like when they give out an award, whether it's it, people that won the Victoria Cross, a, a military cross, a CGC, those people, and like myself, we carry, you definitely carry that for the team, for the troop, for the, for the, the unit that you are in, because I think it's hard to identify any individual act as being superior or more um, gallant than what everyone else has done. Yeah, I think one thing that you'll hear from a lot of people who have received awards of that kind of high level of valor is is similar. Like the sentiments are always similar, um, you know, because you're out there as a team and you're all fighting to survive and stuff like that. So usually, you know, you hear those those same kind of sentiments. I've recently I've had a, a guy on. He was in the Australian SAS. And uh, he received the second highest award for valor, I believe it was. And he was just talking like the the operation for which he received it was, you know, something that everybody played a huge part in, and and it wasn't just him. Who is that then? Um, uh, Brad Watts. Okay, I know those guys. I work at the Aussies. They're great. They're great fun. Yeah, and um, and and he just kind of explained how like. Everyone involved in that mission was just a an integral part to, to saving this this guy's life who was shot by a sniper and because um, he was a medic and um, and it's just kind of it's kind of the same thing I guess. Um, would you be able to talk about that operation or you can't talk about that? You know, maybe in ten years. That the thing is, um, I'm still friends in contact with guys serving, um, and it's just. The nature of what our special operations guys are doing um, has become even more secretive because warfare has changed into this new dynamic, especially the way Russia are behaving. So, you know, if secrecy was important five, ten years ago, it's critical now. Right. Because of the types of work they're doing. You know, my association, whether, you know, and we're all on social media and stuff like that. And it's just easy to start identifying networks. Um, and that's why I kind of leave the SF stuff at the door. And, you know, in time, you know, like you mentioned, now they're talking about the Iranian embassy siege, um, you know, 15, 20, 30 years later, that, that is the time um, for that stuff. But it's just about out of respect to the creed 
you know, the, the oath we take, what we do, it is what it is. Right. What I do know is it's for operations in Afghanistan. I know you can YouTube it and you'll find it online. <laughs> okay. But, um, yeah, you know, we, we were in operations in Kabul, in the south, in the east, all around Afghanistan, busy times. Right on. And, and, and by the way, I've never read my citation. They never let me see it. Oh, wow. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's. I don't know why. I don't think many people in the Special Forces world do, do see it. But, you know, I just want to, whenever people ask about the Special Forces, I'm, you know, I'm very proud of it. Um, I wish, I still wish I was serving. I'm always jealous of the guys hearing what they're up to. But the grass is always greener because, you know, they work so hard and it is dangerous. And you do, even at the time, you don't, you don't even realize, like, it's dangerous. Now, you could be a Monday morning practicing parachuting into the sea with your boats or whatever. It just seems like great fun, but there's inherent risk in everything. You know, there are training accidents all the time, whether it's diving, parachuting. What we do is risky. Um, you know, it's weird to think I was part of that world, and and I miss it. Yeah, it's it's really incredibly risky, and, and I think that's one thing that people don't take into account, like outside of the military, is the combat itself. Obviously, is dangerous, but training for combat is very dangerous as well, and. Um, I I'd read this SBS book um, years ago. Um, I, the guy put it out under like a pen name. I'm, I can't even remember his Duncan name. Duncan Faulkner first. Yeah, interact. Faulkner. Yep, yep. Yeah, that that I mean that's what that's years old, but that's a very famous book. And yeah, as, and he was exp uh, I guess he was in during the time where they were pioneering several t infiltration techniques, and they talked about um, the the techniques of guys getting dropped off by submarine and into kind of, you know, wherever they needed to go. And uh, during some of that training, uh, I, I don't know if it was multiple people, but I know at least one guy was killed um, during that. So, uh, like, I, I think you alluded to this earlier, but basically a, a lot of the techniques, tactics, procedures were lessons learned from people dying, you know, so it's really serious stuff. Uh, absolutely. I'm not... It is always the way the military, British military always thinks it's uh, ahead of the game and willing to um, adopt new tactics and evolve as in an entrepreneurial spirit. But quite often it takes tragedy to invoke change to equipment, change to tactics. Um, but that's the same, I think, in life in general. It does right. take serious, serious things to happen to go wrong before we we start looking at proper lessons that we need to learn that were probably there to be learned before we just never took them on board until something bad happens and only then do we implement them and we and we and we advance but you know what's really come to light now um you know it's, I, I i served an intense 10 years and what i have noticed amongst my contemporaries from the marines special forces and other units around the world is that it's not easy to go to suddenly become a civilian they don't, they train you for combat, but they, they don't train you to be a civvy. They don't train you for life outside of that intensity or outside the institution, the military. And that, you know, that for me is a, there's been a tough transition to where I am now. Um, and yeah, you, you know, the armed forces, they don't give you much support for that. Right. And, and I think, I know this is the case for the U.S. 
I would imagine that it's, it could be similar in the UK, but um, due to the advancements in uh, you know medical equipment and uh, procedures and things like that, more guys are surviving uh, wounds from the battlefield than ever before. You know, in previous wars, a lot of these guys would have died, and um, so that's kind of it's kind of um, created like a, a huge stress on like the the healthcare system for combat veterans, wounded combat veterans, and... It, and it's, mental health. I'm sorry? And mental health. And, and right, and mental health, right. And and th- those mental wounds, right, the ones you don't see. And um, I think, at least over here, people are, are working through them and, and trying to figure out how to, you know, a, a good sort of permanent solution to dealing with some of these things. And a lot of it's been like holistic and, you know, moving away from medication and that kind of thing. Um, and, and I think just in general and in, in life, you know, health wise, I think that's probably a better option for most people. Yeah. Um, well, that, I mean, that's, and it is me trying to get into this. I got it. I set up a security business, which is, is, has become a consultancy, but so many people go on the circuit and they just don't find the same fulfillment. You don't have the same camaraderie, okay, there's, there's some money involved, but the mission's worthless and people really struggle. And for me, what, what's got me, you know, back in good shape physically and mentally is, um, getting involved with our charity veterans for wildlife. So we've got involved with conservation and we, we work in Africa training rangers, work in wildlife reserves, train, giving the skills towards local communities in places like South Africa, Cameroon, Namibia, we've got when we've got loads of requests from other countries to go and train their train their rangers, and this is that this is a new war, uh, which is the the wildlife wars, the illegal wildlife trade network, the trade in rhino horn, ivory, pangolin scales, birds, shark fins, you name it, um, animals are a commodity that have been traded for billion dollar industry, um, and I I love the natural world, I love being outdoors, I don't want to see it destroyed. So the skills I've developed have been incredibly useful um, for work across Africa fighting this this war. And that's where I've sort of really found myself again. Okay, I don't have to be in an office. I don't have to be doing some minor security job. There is a, genu- a mission that I believe in. And when did you get involved in, in doing this kind of work? Was it a few years after you got out? or? It's actually only about two years ago. About two years ago, um, about the same time, I I actually got asked to be on a TV show, which I didn't want to do. And around that sort of time, I ended up going on a diving trip out to the Galapagos, oh, diving nice. hammerheads and whale sharks. And I was like, you know, I need to get back to my roots as a kid. I love wildlife. I love animals. I love diving. This is where it all began in the water. And I started thinking, how can I get involved with uh, television and pre- preserving species. So I just had some ideas about shark conservation. I started pitching them um, to TV channels. And I got a break with Discovery Channel last year and did my first show on Shark Week. Uh, so we did the Shark Week adventure in the Bahamas. We spent two days in the Bahamas floating at sea with Paul de Gelder, who's a host on Shark Week, ex-Australian right. Navy. And it was at that time, but yeah, yeah, probably two and a half years ago, I was pitching doing the shark TV conservation stuff. And then I, I um, 
got approached by the charity was just being set up veterans for wildlife and it all kind of happened at the same time i was like well this is awesome i can make tv shows using the skills i've developed in the military to educate people about wildlife and make it a fun adventure and then i can deploy on my own small missions alongside amazing ex-vet um uh, former veterans with different skill sets and we can train rangers and and game reserves and yeah i haven't looked back since i got involved with doing shark week discovery channel and now pitching other wildlife shows to bbc hopefully we've got some some stuff coming up and then out to africa to, to train the rangers and you're amongst all this amazing wildlife yeah i think it's fascinating um I know there's been uh, a, a large group of Western combat veterans who have gone over to Africa and, and have done that kind of work, the anti-poaching stuff and training rangers and stuff like that. And it's really fascinating, and it's, I think it's really necessary. Um, you know, it's it's really horrible if, if anyone does any research into some of that, um, what goes on with the, the animals out there. Um, I know things like rhino horns and stuff like that are like, are like sought after. Well, look, this is a crisis. There's, there's less than 30,000 rhinos left. There were, you know, what, there would have been millions, you know, 100 years ago. With less than 30,000, some, some of those populations are going extinct. Same with sharks. We've, we've taken out over 90% of the oceanic white tip. Um, and in the Gulf of Mexico, no, there's been a 99% decline since the 60s. We can't go on like this. And because the, the wildlife has a value, you know, rhino horn is worth more pound for pound than gold or cocaine. Wow. And so it's a war out there. The military, law enforcement, those skill sets are needed in to combat the global uh, illegal trade in wildlife. So we need help. And if we want we've got a, we're set up in America. So we want to get American vets on board. You know, so to any of your the people listening, we need help, whether it's sponsorship and uh resource financial resources we need equipment any of you to i know you guys produce amazing equipment in america we need equipment resources uh and you know your veterans um we've got to we've got to get involved now because we want future generations to enjoy the environment to enjoy wildlife and there isn't much of it left so the time is now to get on board with this mission so if if anybody wants to kind of check you guys out and um potentially get involved where can they do where can they go to do that two two places really um our veteran our website is www.veterans4 letter 4 so www.veterans4wildlife.org um i'm also one of the directors director of special projects so you can find me on my instagram j at j a glancy or twitter get in touch send me an email we we're looking for people looking for support um We've, we've got a new project coming up in Belize, so closer to home for the U.S. Um, Jaguar conservation, hardwood composite conservation, training rangers, you know, you name it. Anything that can be traded, every animal, every uh, piece of, uh, you know, tree or wood, they're trading it. And so there, there is opportunities. So the, the trade itself, um, is that like bigger in like Asia and Southeast Asia? Like, like like where it's being bought, like purchased There's and stuff like that? Demand. Yeah, so um, it depends what what we're talking about. Hardwoods, the, the cutting down the rainforest for hardwoods in 
Africa and South America. They're going to the Southeast, but there's demand in the, the West. We all like nice wood products. Right. So the illegal wood timbers end up in our, in our furniture. With animals, yet yeah, rhino horn goes into Chinese medicines. It has no, rhino horn's made out of keratin, the same as your fingernails as hairs and hair. It has no medicine properties whatsoever, but they believe in ancient Chinese culture it does. Things like uh, ivory is, elephant ivory is, is used as sculptures, and then they're using like tiger bones, tiger penises, lion's parts. They grind them up and put them into potions, thinking they're going to give them virility and all sorts of things. It's all nonsense. But there's a lot of money in Indochina, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. They've all they've become much more wealthy, and there's demand for these animals. The demand is outstripping the number of animals available to provide. And that's why we've got a serious crisis on our hands. Yeah, it's terrible. I'm, I, I've been familiar with some of these groups. Like I, I personally know American special ops vets who go out to Africa and do that kind of work, like the anti-poaching stuff and things like that. And I actually think for guys who are getting out, guys and gals getting out, you know, you, you get off that train that's going 100 miles per hour and you, you kind of find that other work isn't quite satisfying. Um, I think just like you found, I think people would find that that kind of work really kind of gets you. It does. And you can volunteer for short, short tours, like two weeks. Most of our people do are still working. They have regular jobs. But what it gives them is the ability to connect with veterans, to talk, you know, talk things through because you can't really talk to other civvies about your operational time but then you're back out on the line on the front line you're training rangers if it's got that operational feel about it you know you're living out of a hammock or on the floor you're, you know you're you're sat around the campfire in the evening um it's it's therapeutic and it's a good mission yeah absolutely and, and i encourage anybody listening or people who are on their way out of the military on the american side to um, you know, take a look at it and and see if that's something you might have some interest in, and I, I think it would be very rewarding. Um, so James, I want to thank you for coming on here. You know, it was a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I've had guests on from the UK, from Australia, and and some of our allied nations, but it's mainly Americans who come on here. Yeah. Um, so it's always great to get a, a different perspective and. Um, you know, hear about, uh, you know, what you guys are up to over in the UK. It's, it's, it's uh, really incredible. Well, thanks very much for having me on. And um, I'll just say you guys have got Shark Week coming up on the 28th of July. And I've got a show out on the 30th of July called Shark Wrecked, Crash Landing. And we pulled a Gelder and I skydive into the Pacific Ocean. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, bit of a survival exercise with sharks, showing that sharks aren't the issue. Uh, the water is the problem. So, anyone's interested in shark week and a bit of survival that's that's what we've got coming up next and also please check out veterans for wildlife and um, get in touch and i look look forward to hearing from you and the, the show that's on discovery right yeah that goes out discovery in the u.s and shark week on the 30th of july at 8 p.m shark wrecked awesome awesome the son of a decorated SAS veteran is one of two soldiers killed in a bomb attack in Afghanistan. They were on a routine foot patrol when they were caught up in an explosion on Thursday near Sangin in northern Helmand province. 
Sergeant Paul McAleese was with the 2nd Battalion, the Rifles. The 29-year-old from Hereford was described as one of the best of his generation and became a father just a week before being deployed to Afghanistan following the birth of his son, Charlie. He is the son of John McAleese, who led the raid that ended the siege on the Iranian embassy in London in 1980. He was among special forces who blew out the building's windows before rescuing 19 hostages from gunmen. The other casualty from Thursday's blast was Private Jonathan Young, who was with the 3rd Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment. He was 18 and from Hull. He arrived in Afghanistan less than three weeks ago, among the reinforcements shoring up units that had taken heavy casualties recently. Their deaths bring the total of British lives lost in the Afghanistan conflict to 206.